Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Oh, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, perfect. Oh, good, because my phone is telling me that I'm on mute still, so I was just about to text you, but hi. Oh, hi. Wait, hang on. Let me just uh, check the audio real quick, because I can hear you, so I should be able to... um... Let me just double-check. Sorry. No, you're good. The, jo- the joys of uh, live programming, right? <laughs> right. Like something always goes wrong every time. We have, a, we have a motto in the work I do at Task Force is just end with grace when it comes to tech problems these days. And <laughs> I have a theory that, like, my theory is that somewhere around 2015 or 16, our tech efficiency peaked, and it's mm-hmm. all been downhill, and that the technology is just messing with us at this point. So it's literally <laughs> impossible to have it go perfectly. That's my theory. I'm sticking to it. Uh, I am going to steal your theory, actually, <laughs> for my own purposes. Please do. <laughs> I mean... At this point, because also, come on, during pandemic, you could get frustrated with mic problems or mute problems or whatever, but that's a lot of negative energy, and who needs to spend all that negative energy? You know, you might as well. It happens. That is a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah. All right. Well, for one, I do apologize for getting to to email you earlier. Um. Hopefully okay. not to look over the last email and like that. I know. I don't have, like, a very specific list of for you. Uh, ah, yes, I, I can hear you. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Cool. That's, my, that's, that's our um, our producer, by the way. <laughs> Hi. Thank you, William. All right. All right. I'm uh, turning mine on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I apologize. I didn't have a super specific list of questions. Um, I was kind of let the conversation trying to be a little bit, like, organic and free-flowing, but I kind of, like, laid out the gist of where I want it to go. So hopefully that works for you. That's fine. I am fine with the organic free-flow. Yeah. Because um, I, I know some people really prefer, like, having um, a specific list of questions, but I'm like, I don't know. You're the expert. Just talk. We'll just listen. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think that's great. And so if you if I say something, you can be like, you know, like let's backtrack and talk about this a little bit, or I will bring stuff up. Because actually, the last time I did one, they sent me questions in advance. I wrote down some notes, and then they literally stuck to it, like question by question. And when I went off script to elaborate, it threw them off. And oh, they no. kept having me start over. And I was like, this isn't helpful. <laughs> yeah, it was a bunch of, like, 60-year-old people trying to put a podcast together. And clearly they're not of oh, the podcast no. generation. So. <laughs> oh, well, well, that's not okay. Yeah. So we can just well, – and so are you – do you edit this then to – or does it – I don't really um, – So generally – excuse me. <clears throat> Um, so normally what we do is we record and then we'll edit out anything. So like if you say something you specifically want edited out or like misspeak on something, we do that. But generally, um, the only reason we pre-record is just, you know, for that sort of thing, but we don't do a ton of editing unless it's requested. Okay, cool. But that's, I can go back and correct. Like if I say something 
Yeah, when I get going, I get going. (laughs) No, no, I totally get it. I had to do it myself where I'll be like, yeah, because, you know, in 1992, but then it was actually like 1982. So I have to go back and be like, I actually meant 1982 when I said 1992, you know. So no worries at all. Uh, When Um, I get going, it's more like, fuck the FBI, burn it all down. And then I go back and I'm like, I shouldn't get fired, so let me soften that a little bit. We will soften any fuck the FBI's, even though we also have a very strong fuck the FBI stance ourselves. Right? It's it's ACAB all day, all the way over here. But we also understand trying to be employed. (laughs) Right? There's benefits to me in my current position where it's nice that nobody knows that I... I'm way more radical than the people that they think are radicals. So, yeah. No, I totally get it. All right, but if you want to get started, um, speaking of sure. which, aside from your anti-FBI <laughs> stance, um, can you tell us a little bit about you, um, who you are, what you do, how you got involved doing what you do? I can. So my name is Erin Albright. I am an attorney by training. Um, and my area of expertise and my area of work is human trafficking and specifically working with task forces and multidisciplinary teams to build up their response efforts to trafficking. So this includes services, law enforcement, prosecutors, and community. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pause there because I'm getting an echo, and I just want to check in with you guys. Um, I am not getting an echo, but I, okay. Um, okay. I did put my headphones in though, actually. So let me turn my headphones off and see if that makes a difference. Okay. I don't know. Uh, shoot. Yes. What? So well, oh. let's figure that out first because I want you to be comfortable, but I don't, I just didn't want the, I'm okay with the echo, but I don't know if it's going to show up in your recording. Okay. Is it still echoing on your end? It is not. Okay. It must have been the headphones then. Okay. That's fine. No headphones for me. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, no, you're fine. That's thing. So my work has largely been with human trafficking task forces since 2007. I got my start with the issue of human trafficking in law enforcement when I was in law school and when I was in law school, I actually ended up working for the Boston Police Department in their human trafficking unit for a couple of years, um, wow. bridging over to post-law school. So, yeah, that was my first exposure to anti-trafficking and all sorts of other stuff was working nights for Boston Police Department from 2008 till 2012-ish. Um, but over the years, I really started working with task forces and I went on to become the director of the one in New Hampshire for a couple of years before heading down to DOJ to do a fellowship where I worked with task forces across the country. Now, while all of that was happening, I developed some specific areas of expertise, one of which is labor trafficking. um, And the other one is policing and response to human trafficking. And Mm -hmm. I think... Um, 
For a long time, I was privy to law enforcement investigations. I was lucky I got to work with some amazing detectives that really had big hearts and really put their heart and soul into supporting victims and all of that. But the way I describe it is there was always something missing when I mm-hmm. was in Boston, and I, di- I didn't know what that was. Something wasn't making complete sense to me, but I didn't know enough to figure out what that was. Um, this is also in Boston back in the early days, you know, circa 2010 when demand abolition was really getting its feet off the ground uh, and all of that. So I definitely was in that bandwagon for a little while. But again, something was missing. So uh-huh. 2012, 2012, I think, I left Boston Police um, and I actually went over to be the regional coordinator for a service provider program. Uh, where I built a service network throughout New England. And through that, there were another couple of steps, but through that I became a member of the Freedom Network. And mm-hmm. that's where I met met Kate Diadamo. Okay. And yeah, yeah in, in meeting Kate and in doing some stuff for Freedom Network um, and talking with Kate and just really learning and being introduced to sex worker rights world and all of that, finally everything clicked. The thing that was missing clicked. And since then, you know, I haven't done an about face on what I believe and what I think is important, but I think that that brought a lot more value to my work, being able to see everything from a harm reduction lens, for example, being able to Mm -hmm. shift perspectives from force, fraud, and coercion to choice, circumstance, coercion um that was probably one of the biggest moments because the force fraud coercion didn't make sense to me in a lot of situations right i didn't right. you couldn't put right you couldn't put everything i was seeing and all the people i was working with you couldn't put them in that bucket mm-hmm. and so it mm-hmm. was through um through uh swp in new york and kate and freedom network and a bunch of other folks and learning you know choice circumstance coercion that finally it began to make sense and ever since i think it's been really important to me to bring that perspective and amplify that perspective in the anti-trafficking world because i think it's critical to fighting trafficking to have that perspective and yet it's something for the most part, is not talked about. Yeah, no, I agree, absolutely. And I'm so glad to hear that uh, Kate and Freedom Network uh, sort of, like, were instrumental on this journey because uh, someone who worked for Freedom Network was actually one of our board members uh, very recently. And, of course, we love Kate. Uh Kate's actually been on the podcast before. So welcome to the fold. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it. It was, when I say click, I really mean click. I can remember pacing my apartment in Boston one of the first times Kate and I ever spoke on the phone and her, and she just, she was just talking. We were working on a thing and, you know, I was young and dumb and I had lived in the law school world where it's like a bubble. And then I had lived in the Boston police world where it's a bigger bubble. And yet I knew something was missing. And I swear it was literally like a click, like a cosmic sound happened. Um, so it it was great. Yeah, no, I actually appreciate the honesty, um, about that journey. It's always so fascinating to me, uh, because I got involved with this from being very much on the other side of it, which was like, okay, well, no money, going to go do sex work, I guess, 
wish me luck, hope yeah. I come back home alive, like type situation. Um, and so it's always interesting to see how other people end up, uh, you know, basically uh, defending sex worker rights or defending labor rights. So it, it's always yeah. like a fascinating thing to hear how people end up in that uh, on that like path in their lives. So I appreciate you for sharing that with us. Um, but now that you've laid out all your expertise, so the real reason <laughs> that we were hoping you would come on <laughs> is to talk about the Martha's Vineyard situation. Um, so what I'm seeing a lot, we're getting a, oh my gosh, we're getting so many like emails and calls and texts and things. From people who have heard a little bit about the Martha's Vineyard situation who are like, well, why can't we just charge all these people with trafficking? And so if we could have a conversation breaking down why the Martha's Vineyard situation is not trafficking, um, what it would like if it was trafficking, and why that distinction matters, that would be amazing. Because a lot of people seem to think it was trafficking or that it doesn't matter if you call it trafficking because it's bad. Like very much that um, urge to broad brush things that you don't like. You know, like, oh, yeah. I don't like it. Oh, it's bad. They did a bad thing. It must be trafficking. And it's like, well, no, you still have to call it what it actually is, even though it's, you know, like bad and horrible and immoral. So um, if we could break that down a little bit, that would be outstanding. Can we talk about Martha's Vineyard? Yeah, we absolutely can. And let me just jump right off the bat on that point of why can't we call it trafficking? Or I think I was interacting with someone on social media a couple of days ago and they said, they said, well, I think it's trafficking. And I said, <laughs> human trafficking is a legal concept. There is a legal definition. You don't actually get to use your subjective definition on it because mm-hmm. that carries like the legal element carries a lot of weighted meanings. So you, you don't get to just be like, well, I think it is. And so based on my individual perspective, it's trafficking and I'm going to call it trafficking. Because that results in a lot of harm in and of itself if you are taking something that is defined legally um, and you're using that term but applying it to something that doesn't fit that law, you're just creating more misinformation in the world and more confusion Mm -hmm. for everybody when it comes to the actual legal concept. So for me, the problem here is it's not human trafficking. And to mm-hmm. call it that means that we, especially given the level of press it's getting, to call it human trafficking means that we are educating the entire public right now that, you know, this set of actions constitutes human trafficking, which means that when real human trafficking is happening, they're not going to notice it because mm-hmm. it's very different. Mm-hmm. That's what I get concerned about. Just, you know, things along those lines. And it, I mean, to your point, it is really important to have these things be nuanced. So to break it down for you, um, if, this, if this were trafficking, it would be labor trafficking, right? Because there was no commercial sex mm-hmm. involved. And the federal definition of trafficking distinguishes between labor and sex. Um, but the labor trafficking law has three parts. Right. There's the first part that is recruitment, transportation, harboring, some sort of action that got the people involved. So here it appears that there actually here's where it's funny because it appears like there actually was a white van at some point that was stopping and recruiting people. So either way, here there was a recruitment and there was a transportation. So you actually do have the first element of trafficking. The second element of trafficking is you know, through force, fraud, or coercion. It's what we call the means. Like, how did you make this thing happen? And here we have fraud. They were lied to. So we have recruitment or transportation. 
you know, through fraud. So you have the first two elements. The barrier mm-hmm. you hit or the problem you hit is the third element. The third element is, or the way the full statutory definition is the recruitment, harbor, transportation, et cetera, through force, fraud, or coercion for the purposes of debt bondage, peonage, involuntary servitude, or slavery. Mm-hmm. And that's what's missing here. We're missing that final part. We don't have a debt bondage situation that they ended up in. We don't have peonage, involuntary servitude, or slavery that they ended up in. Mm-hmm. So there is le- that last part is where the actual labor part of the labor trafficking comes in. And each of those are their own federal crimes that contain an element of coercion. So what we're actually missing is the coercive labor here. Instead, we mostly have labor by fraud, which technically happens all the time. Is that tracking? Because I've gotten a lot of pushback even on that explanation. So I mean, that makes makes sense to me. (laughs) No, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I think, like, the the thing I'm seeing people being stuck on the most is, um, like, that they feel like it should be trafficking and they don't understand why they can't legally call it that. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I I find like that's like a really big problem that people are having right now because I think that it's the uh, um, response to say like what happened to these people is like really fucking terrible, like really fucking terrible. And there's like this sort of outrage that you want the justice system to like defend them, but not using trafficking law. (laughs) That's really so many people are really, really hung up on that, and it's very unfortunate. Well, and here's the thing. I don't blame them. A reasonable person would think it's trafficking based on what they probably already know about trafficking generally. They're probably familiar with mm-hmm. drug trafficking or, or, or arms trafficking, right, which is basically the movement of something, right? And so your average reasonable person, I wouldn't fault them for thinking that, hey, these people were just moved, there was some criminality in it, of course it's trafficking. And here's the important thing for everybody to know, when Congress and the United Nations wrote these laws back in the early 2000s, they goofed. I don't, I don't know how else to say this. I don't know why they decided to call it human trafficking, but mm-hmm. it really doesn't fit in with the other types of criminalized trafficking because it doesn't require movement. And that's actually, and the funny thing is when we do trainings on trafficking, everybody who does trainings on trafficking, one of the first things they go over is the fact that it doesn't include movement and how it's different than these other crimes. So what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how to say it diplomatically is Congress labeled this crime stupidly. I mean, sometimes you don't have to be diplomatic. Sometimes you just got to be honest, though, right? <laughs> right? Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad name for the law, but it's been there for 20 years. We can't change it. Um, it was, and I actually wish I knew the history of why that language, specific language came out, but it's just a poorly labeled law, and that's why we're having these problems. So helping people understand that I, you know, there's a couple things. Helping people understand, yes, I know why you think it's trafficking. Okay. Here's the thing about the trafficking law is it doesn't actually require movement and it looks nothing like these other trafficking laws. And then third, you know, very specifically what it requires is some sort of coercive labor as the end result, and that's what we lack here. 
Mm-hmm. So then, okay, so I know that you can't just, like, magically fix everything, right, because you're just a person. Um, but if you could magically fix everything, what would be the fix to this situation? Would you start with um, redefining trafficking laws? Would you start with, um, you know, identifying, like, a crime, what crime could these people possibly be charged with? I know you can't personally, like, prosecute them, but did they do something illegal? Like, where do we go from here? Yes. So there's two things there, actually. Um, it is possible that if they committed a crime, and this is Aaron, the attorney, not actually saying that they committed a crime or anything like that, but there is part of the smuggling law that talks about transporting basically undocumented individuals like within the country mm-hmm. that it's possible you could look at that as, as the crime. Um, that's uh, section 1324 of the U S code is the, is the law that governs uh, smuggling and harboring of undocumented individuals. So there's a sub part of that on domestic transportation that maybe, maybe that's it. Um, other than that, I'm not entirely sure because it seems like new details are coming out all the time, so I don't want to speculate, but I think we can all agree that it was a it was a cruel and disgusting stunt. Mm-hmm. I do think it leans in on potential for criminality somewhere along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just not entirely sure, you know, what that would be. So I can't. Now, going back to the change in the laws, I don't know if I would change the law. The one thing that's funny is that the labor trafficking statute, again, has the same means as sex trafficking statute, you know, by forced fraud or coercion. Mm -hmm. And the word fraud is tricky there. Because you can't have just, you know, recruitment, harbor, transport, et cetera, et cetera, through fraud for the purpose of labor. That's not the law, but that's what a lot of people read the law as saying initially, right? The actuality is for the purpose of debt bondage, peonage, slavery, involuntary servitude. So fraud in the labor trafficking statute is always attached to that third element that has some form of coercion in it. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to explain that because I don't know if that made sense, but what I'm trying to say is fraud alone does not get you to labor trafficking. You need some factor of coercion, which might come in as the means, or it might come in through one of those four enumerated statutes. But again, fraud alone is not actionable. If it was, there'd be all sorts of employers out there that could be charged with trafficking. Right? Like, that's so hard how- when you think about it, though. I mean, there's all sorts of shady things where, like, employers can lie or not really tell the truth or it can seem fraudulent Mm -hmm. or something, but it's not illegal. Um, And because you still basically, you know, are free to just quit that job and move on, it's not going to be trafficking. You need that next level, which is hard to explain to people. Yeah, definitely, because I think that there really is so much emotion. It, it is really just such an emotionally charged conversation because you are talking about people. Yes. And just, yeah. you know, it, it's so it's so grim and so dark. And, yeah, I, I, I completely understand the um, 
like the anger and the upset that people are having, you know, looking at these images and, you know, hearing about these people, these people's lives and hearing their stories. Like I totally understand that, but um, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, I think to know that we live in a society where this sort of thing is just kind of like allowed to happen because the lawmakers made it legally. Okay. I guess, Um, you know, and so like, I think that's very frustrating. Um, But so I guess like the question then would be going forward, what can we do or how can we help or what should we be doing? So the lawyer in me says that folks can pay a lot more attention to immigration law and immigration policy because we have a somewhat draconian immigration legal apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um and you can also pay more attention to labor law and worker rights and labor rights because we have a somewhat uh, exploitative labor law set up in this country. I really think it's about focusing back on those like, fundamental rights, you know, and looking at these legal regimes that have been built up over decades and centuries that actually, you know, can create the very conditions that, that folks want to resolve with the law mm-hmm. or actually created by the law in the first place. So I think that's actually really critical is understanding more about immigration law and understanding more. See, it just gets bigger after a while because then geopolitics, what's going on in Venezuela that might prompt people to make that journey or to the immigration laws look like that might oh, prevent them from using legal processes. What do, there's a whole cascade yeah. of issues. Also, I'm so, yeah, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but, like, as a kind of a side note, but also tangentially related, um, did you see that um, Biden's, um, I forgot her name, she's the, um, she does all, like, the, the press interviews, I just totally forgot her name, saying that communism is why there's, like, an influx of immigrants to America? What? I'm like, what? communism? What the fuck are you, it's not what? communism, it's fucking climate change in the United States won't stop getting involved in other people's elections. That's really what it is. Right? Like, what are you talking well, about? Have you read but, a history book about our involvement in Latin America and South America? Because I'm pretty sure we've yeah. spent decades destabilizing those countries. Um, no, it's communism. Communism oh. is why they're coming up here, apparently. So, yeah, that was just... That was just really wild to hear someone just straight up, uh, like at a, you know, like at the White House press briefing, just be like, "It's communism," like as if America has had nothing to do with geopolitics since forever. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, the first thing I think of is I think of the war in Ukraine, and then I think Biden's really old, and I think, dear Lord, is he trying to resurrect the Cold War? Like, what's going on here? Is he seeing Putin being aggressive, and he like? spent most of his life living throughout Cold War politics? Are you trying to recreate this? Why would you say that? Like, huh, okay. I also spent all weekend listening to Cold War podcasts. That's also on my mind, but that's neither here nor there. Um, okay. No, it seems like we're always on the verge of going back to Cold War because for some reason Russia is always like this sort of like like boogeyman to America for some reason. I'm like, oh, no, what are the Russians doing? It's like, why I've never understood why we're so obsessed with Russia. Never understood it, but. You know, when I was in college, um, I developed my own sort of like, I was an international affairs major and sort of my cheat sheet that I used to use was just, everything was about the Cold War. 
right? Anything you wanted to write about in international relations, you either, it was either a result of the Cold War or it led up to the Cold War. And I feel like I got A's all throughout college on that theory and it worked great. So pro tip for anybody that's taking international relations, like sometimes now you kind of have to like buy, like split it between 9-11 and the Cold War, but it works. Trust me. And join us next time for more life Right? <laughs> Listen, um, if you want me to talk about how to get through English class in college, right, like I have all sorts of tips on that. But I want to visit something you were saying a minute or two ago about it, it is horrible, and people want to, to call it something that recognizes the horror of it, right? And they mm-hmm. don't want it to be just, you know, smuggling, which it's also not smuggling proper, although it might be a subcategory of it. Um, and I think, though, that to me what that says is it tracks something that makes me worried in the anti-trafficking world in general, and that is this tendency to over-identify things as trafficking. And, mm-hmm. and over time, it, you pick up this sort of mentality or you get worried that the field has this mentality or the public that, that everything, if it's going to be terrible, it has to be trafficking. If, that if you don't call it trafficking, that somehow makes it less terrible. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that we need to be really aware of, the tilt toward that and push back on. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't want to play this game of, like, what type of crime or victimization is better than another type of crime or victimization or harm. And, and that's where mm-hmm. it leads you to of, you know, this is only deserving of our attention if it's human trafficking and it's extreme like that versus, you know, you could have just as much harm accrue to something that isn't actually trafficking and, and we shouldn't be valuing the things, you know, making value judgments on those. Yeah. And, you know, relatedly to that, I see, actually do see that sort of attitude a lot in, um, you know, like spaces that are specifically like anti-sex work uh, combined with being anti-trafficking. Cause like a big point of contention is whether or not you should be able to allow to arrest people who are victims of trafficking or suspected victims of trafficking. Right. And so there's this whole thing that it's like, no, uh, you know, obviously I'm on the side that arrest is violent. Um, it's traumatizing. It's triggering. Like you shouldn't out, be out here arresting people uh, who aren't, you know, uh, being dangerous to themselves or to society, aren't committing, you know, crimes like that. And there's also this attitude that I see from a lot of trafficking orgs <laughs> where their whole thing is that like, well, but you have to get the trafficked person away from their trafficker, so it's okay to, like, violently kidnap and arrest them and put them in jail because that's, like, better than trafficking, because that's less violent than trafficking. And so once we get to, the, like, as you were just saying, that point about, like, um, you know, what's a better type of harm or a less severe type of harm, once we start, like, viewing it, like, through that lens, all of a sudden it opens us up to these, like, really dark places where we're justifying, you know, cops arresting and locking up you know like 16 year old kids because they were trafficked and it's like that's that's not really the way to go either that's not um helping with community relations that's not making these people feel safer around police that's not making these people feel safe and secure when they're just coming out of this really awful situation but you know it's um a very prevalent mindset that it's just okay to do that because it's less harmful than actual trafficking and so it's just like devastating the way people have used that sort of logic to um, you know, create really uncomfortable situations for people who need resources and help, not arrest and handcuffs, you know? Terrible. Oh, I know. Um, 
Let me just start off by saying anybody that's out there saying that arrest of trafficking victims and sex workers is necessary to combat trafficking is 100% wrong. Um, And that's a very... That actually has been one of the pillars of the work that I've been doing for the past couple of years. When I was doing the fellowship with DOJ, I went into that fellowship with a couple of goals, but one of my goals was stop arresting victims. Because when I started my fellowship in 2017, that was still very much a dominant part of the conversation. There was a rationalization of arresting victims. Um, And I actually extend that victims and vulnerable individuals is how I phrase it if I'm talking to a group. and that just defies logic, um, mm-hmm. 100%. And I, it doesn't make sense. And so one of the things that I do a lot with task forces these days, and I have some great colleagues I work with, is we really approach all of this from this concept of do no harm. And very often, though, with the groups that still promote the arrest narrative or whatever, there's very often a long conversation and sort of journey of walking through that concept of do no harm and really looking at it and saying, like, well, you know, have you talked to the individuals that you're arresting? What do they want? I mean, favorite line mm-hmm. I ever heard um, was someone said to me, you know, but Aaron, isn't it better for this person to spend one night in jail rather than be back out on the street with their trafficker? And my response was, no. Have you ever spent a night in jail? Um, or did you ask them what was better and what would be safer? Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of deconstructing of that vision because it's very, I don't know what I, it's very, it's a very paternalistic way to look at it as well. Right. Um, right. Of like, we need to intervene to put you in jail, to protect you from, but there's never a conversation with the individual. There's never a conversation about, you know, what is it that you need? Um hmm I lost my train of thought a little bit there, but I, you said a couple of things I wanted to emphasize. What we're trying to really talk about is that you know, community relations, right? Of what, because I don't think arresting people is so much about getting them away from their trafficker as it is in confining them to a specific space so that the investigation goes smoother. Mm-hmm. so that they are still accessible for an interview so that even you know service providers who agree with arresting victims you know are still trying to exercise some sort of control over that person um, I did lose my train of thought which happens very often because it's complicated but <laughs> what I want to see happen right but what I want to see mm-hmm. happen is repairing community relations And one of the conversations we often have is, listen, some of these folks that are victims of trafficking or other people who are are marginalized or who have been made vulnerable by the system, you know, they come from communities that have experienced a tremendous amount of abuse and harm from not only law enforcement, Mm -hmm. but the system at large. Right. And until that trust or until that harm is acknowledged on the first place, or in the first place, and then the trust is rebuilt, it's always going to be an uphill battle. You're always going to have to resort to the, what I call coercive tactics like arrest. 
mm-hmm. in order to get to whatever your end is. Um, but I think that we've certainly seen in jurisdictions where the PD or even individual detectives have developed really strong community relations and community trust, like they actually do better and they get a ton of case referrals from everybody, including sex workers, because they have mm-hmm. that trust. Versus the jurisdictions that don't have that, where they're still using the arrest tactic. And all that is doing is entrenching that mistrust even further. So, yes, to your point about all of that, like community relations are really the key to that. Um, And rescuing Mm -hmm. anybody through a coercive intervention is never going to be the solution. Except have you... um convince people that community relations are the way to go. Because something that I find uh, in a lot of this work is that there is the uh, assumption that, first of all, uh, anyone who is involved in sex work is trafficked, right? Like, that's a very big misconception. Um, but also that um, by default of them being trafficked, they aren't entitled to make their own decisions. Like, there yeah. really is that, which is such a bizarre um thought to me like so you find someone who you think has had all of their autonomy stripped and your response is to further strip them of autonomy like very bizarre reaction but all right um but i really do find it difficult to get people on board with the idea of community relations because they simply feel like people who are trafficked don't deserve to have voices and sex workers don't deserve to have voices right because there is this assumption that like it's you know, you did something to end up here. There's something immoral about you. There's something wrong with you. There's something defective with you if you're a sex worker. If you're trafficked, then you're just too weak and broken to deserve your own voice. And I'm not really sure how to convince people to sort of overcome that in terms of, um, you know, creating community solutions. Like, any ideas on that? Yeah. I know. I just threw that I one out there. That, that was, like, not on the pre- no. The pre- no. <laughs> You, I mean, you, you kind of just put into words like the my existential dilemma these days. Of, right? I know what needs to happen. How do we get people from A to Z? And I think one of the key things to think about is it's not going to be an overnight process, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, I see glimmers of hope. And also for me, in the role that I'm in right now, it's about really figuring out what the barriers to that are. So let me Mm -hmm. give you a couple of examples. I have found, and this might be surprising to some folks, but I have found that working with other folks in the anti-trafficking field, including service writers and law enforcement, that a lot of them are like me when I first started, where they're doing everything that that they've kind of been told to do but something is wrong, something's missing. And when you open the door to acknowledging that for them, there's a solid percent that run right through it. And they are grateful that you've at least acknowledged that whatever tension they're feeling is valid. And then Mm -hmm. you can start to play ball a little bit. So, you know, when you say to them, you know, listen, like not all sex work is trafficking. You and I both know that but they're coming out of a system that is telling them like it's a, you know, it's, it's a criminal or a victim. They can't be both. Right. Or they can't be just a person is a better way to say in that. Um, a lot of law enforcement I work with are uncomfortable with those, you know, binaries that they're given. And so when you finally validate their experience, which tells them that there's a difference, you're great. Mm-hmm. You can begin building, you can start redirecting, you can begin plant, like laying those seeds 
Um, and I call them seeds because they do need to be cultivated. Okay. Because there's so many other systemic pressures on people where, um, you know, so one thing that we do is we like to talk about outcomes a lot. You know, what are the outcomes Mm -hmm. when you do these giant operations that arrest everybody? You know, how many actual cases did you get out of it? Oh, like none? Interesting, you know, versus that victim that you worked with a year ago who you treated really respectfully and you built that trust who called you up the other day and told you about two more cases that are coming up, right, that she knows about. Um, That's the difference between building trust versus engaging in coercion. One, you get nothing. The other, it germinates over time. So getting them to think about things that way um, and, oh, man, I'm trying to think. Really, one of the things that I enjoy, I don't enjoy talking about, though, is, you know, what hasn't worked. Like, you're not getting, let's talk, you know, massage businesses, right? And and this is, mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to open this door, but that's complicated, although it's also not complicated. What I tend to say with law enforcement groups is, listen, we tried to criminalize these massage businesses out of existence, and that didn't work. All right. right. Then, then we reframed it as trafficking, and then we tried the raid and rescue tactic, and that certainly didn't work. And they all know mm-hmm. this too, right? That didn't work. Right. Um, and then also we we went the not in my backyard policy and looked at licensing and ordinances and stuff, and guess what didn't work? That. Mm. Um, so telling them that, and then saying, you know what, we haven't tried yet. We haven't tried actually talking to the workers. We haven't tried engaging with them and asking what they need and looking at it from a worker rights perspective. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying worker rights perspective as a proxy for enforcement. Right? You can't go, like, it's right. not cops you go, that, are, that are being sent in to have these conversations, right? It can't be that. Um, it has to be a genuine worker rights perspective and conversation of talking to people about what do they need, what are they, you know, and... I don't know. This is something that I've only been doing for probably like the last year and a half. And there are definitely some people where they immediately perk up and think, you're right. And then there are other people that are a little too stuck in their ways. Um, so to answer your question, a long road that needs a lot of different things going on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, a lot of coaching Maybe, and do you know one interesting thing that we've discovered um, the past couple of years is that one of the problems with law enforcement is the turnover rate? Interesting. You Tell have, me more. Yeah, so you have one of the, the conversations that frustrates me about training. Every report you read says, we need more training, which I say, no, we don't. We need better training. But right now, what we actually need is uh, transition training because you get a detective who works these kinds of cases for a couple of years and they, they go through the learning curve that a lot of detectives go through. Um, and, and they're in a place where they're really good. They're not arresting people. They are, they're not pressuring for interviews. They are, they're very victim centered, right? And they're building a lot of trust and then they get promoted and you start back at zero. Because we still okay. don't have, we still don't have, and, and to be clear, I work with law enforcement. Part of my job, well, a big part of my job is to get law enforcement to, you know, much more victim-centered place and to figure out what that looks like. And what we don't have is 
system-wide approach to victims and vulnerable people or a system-wide harm reduction mentality within policing such that that new person is coming to the table ready to go. They're not. Mm -hmm. They need to be sort of untrained in all of their previous police experience and trained back through a harm reduction perspective. And when you have to do that every three years and then go through the learning curve, you never Mm -hmm. make any progress. Okay, so, that makes sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it just, and it, you know, the other factor, this is why I think, well, I think a lot about policing, but the other thing I point out is you can't just have a human trafficking unit that's victim-centered. When, when mm-hmm. the unit next door is out there, you know, destroying the belongings of the, you know, the, the folks that are homeless or unstably housed, right? And then the next day mm-hmm. you expect some of those people to come forward and, and say, hey, we were trafficked. Like right, What exactly. you do outside of this unit, because I've worked with some amazing law enforcement, I would, right, who would go to bat for, for victims and sex workers alike, but one person doesn't make change. Right. It's a systemic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I went a little like heavy on the law enforcement right there, but um, I do find that for pretty much anybody I talk to, that when you back to the, what I said originally, that um, when you tackle that assumption that all sex work is trafficking and you open the door for nuance, a lot of people mm-hmm. do go through that door because in their own personal experience, they've seen that nuance and nobody's ever given them permission to recognize that nuance before. So when mm-hmm. you finally do, they end up being really grateful and really curious. And it doesn't mean that they fully come on board to there's a difference right away, but I've found that, you know, quite often as they they, they speed up on the learning curve, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, that totally makes sense. And I, I can understand that as well, because when you're seeing something happen, seeing something happen, um, you know, in real time, right? <laughs> like it can definitely change your perceptions. Yeah. And of course, having multiple interactions with people, because a lot of people who, you know, do get caught up in these, um, you know, just in police bullshit, just for lack of a better term, are oftentimes repeatedly caught up. And so, yeah, you are seeing the same person, um, you know, go through different phases of their life or different points of their life, and you're just watching them the whole time. So, yeah, I can definitely see how um, what you were saying about the turnover rate, making things difficult. But, yeah, I do wish that um, we could have more critical conversations about trafficking and how sex work is not trafficking, um, you know, and how just how, like, I'll say irresponsible I find a lot of laws around trafficking to be and sex work to be, Um you know, because there's always, like, this push, like, oh, let's do the Nordic model or the Swedish model. Like, it's so good. And it's like, but if you can still get evicted for being a sex worker, like, how is that beneficial, you know? And so, like, those are the sort of things I always um, wonder about because it, it it just seems wild how all these ideas and policies and laws and um, even just the in the – in the culture, how we talk about sex work and trafficking, it's so uninformed by sex workers and trafficked people themselves. 
it's like we listen to everybody but the people who have actually lived this life, you know. And that's like yeah. there, there's just something so deeply distressing about that, that, you know, a cop who isn't approaching this from a harm reduction standpoint will get um, treated seriously, be taken seriously, and have their ideas valued over someone who actually is a sex worker, like someone who's been doing sex work for, like, yeah. homeless for, like, you know, 10 years, somehow has less of a voice than a cop who just graduated the academy. Like, what the fuck? And so that it's just so depressing and distressing, you know, and I just I, I wish there was a way yeah. to shift that uh, part of the conversation faster. <laughs> I wish there was, too. And I'll tell you that maybe this is me spilling secrets. But in what I've done on that front is find the cops that have the harm reduction mentality. Right. Mm-hmm. Elevate and platform them. And then ask them to amplify and and that's that just a triage. Yes, but okay. On it's still, but the progress it makes is still like on an individual level. Like that that conversation is mm-hmm. then heard by you know a handful of individuals who then start thinking like there's still not a systemic way of dealing with this. Mm-hmm. But that's firmly been my belief and my experience of finding those law enforcement that have had that perspective. And not only that, but having them explain their learning curve. And very often it's because they were with somebody who, you know, have talked, met with sex workers and listened to them and learned from them and really embraced learning from them and that lived experience. And um, at first it was just finding them and, and helping to amplify those cops. And now I just, I don't even care. Now I'm just like, okay, but now you go amplify the sex workers because that's, mm-hmm. that's critical. Um and I think one of the – everybody wants a simple solution. Right. Right? Like everybody wants it to be as easy as if we just end demand, we'll mm-hmm. fix it. But there are no – or like if we just have, you know, the right type of algorithm for, for scraping escort websites or – you know, everybody wants that silver bullet that doesn't exist. And I think that's also incumbent on the trafficking world to to really dig in on that and say that out loud to people of mm-hmm. I know you want you want shutting down Backpage to be the thing that ends trafficking. And we can tell you right now that that's not going to happen. In fact, it'll probably make it worse. Here's what yep. really needs to happen. Um, one of the things that we've been working on in my world with task forces recently is really looking at the outreach and awareness that they do. And I've been Mm -hmm. asking them in these conversations, I've been asking, what's your biggest challenge? And and, and you know what? Like one of the challenges is community trust every time. Uh, But usually we hear something like housing, right? Because housing is a problem everywhere. Uh, But then I say to them, how many times do you bring that up in your awareness trainings? And usually the answer is none. Mm-hmm. And so we work through this like deconstruction model of, all right, so if we're going out there and we're doing awareness trainings that basically say, hey, here's trafficking, here's how you spot it, and here's how you report it. Okay, are you getting cases from that? Oh, you're not getting cases from that? Okay, let's change our learning objectives. What is it that you mm-hmm. need? You need housing? We'll maybe talk about that a little bit. Talk about how the lack of housing hurts victims and puts them in a place where they can be re-victimized. Lack of housing also impacts people who are marginalized and vulnerable, again, making them more susceptible to these other harms. So help people connect those dots and then send them off to their local council meeting or their 
town government meeting when they're talking about housing to have those conversations. Tell them to keep track of housing policy. Um, So we've been trying to shift things to have the conversation about systemic stuff. I will tell you, as an anti-trafficking movement, this is a it's a very early for us. I feel like we're beginning to see a sea change towards more hitting systemic things Mm -hmm. and moving away from the silver bullet conversation. The problem being the people that are really loud are not Mm -hmm. necessarily part of the solution. Oh, yes. So many, I have so many thoughts about so many people in this movement and yes. things will be better without a great many of them, Um, particularly people in the uh, anti-trafficking organizations oftentimes. Well, and like, (laughs) and that's the thing, like, I know, I know so many, it's it's funny being sort of sitting in the middle of all of different, all these different beliefs and these different fields and stuff or being adjacent to services and law enforcement and sex worker rights and harm reduction and all these other things. Um, all of which overlap and all that kind of stuff. But I, and I joke very often that at at any given point in time, somebody out there is mad at me for some reason, because I Mm -hmm. sit in the middle of all these groups that have, you know, there's tension between, but I do think that there's a lot of people in the anti-trafficking movement that really do appreciate sex worker rights. And there's another big group of people that are just beginning to learn but they're mm-hmm. very curious because they've been feeling the tension for a long time. And then there's the third category of people that are just double down and demand silver bullet. And unfortunately, those are the loud people. They are very loud. And unfortunately, they're also very well funded. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Partially because they're loud. So, I, I mean, <sighs> I guess, and I say that although in terms of looking at it from sort of sex work and sex trafficking and all of that, and I say that of... 15 years in the field, I do see things changing in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't know if that's enough. I don't know if it's too incremental the way that the change is happening right now. Um, But there's enough to at least give me hope and basically keep me from quitting. well, you know, sometimes but, what we really need is hope, though. So, like, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna beef with that. Um, although, I just wanted, yeah. to, as a side note, um, I again something that was not in the question. Um, did you see the article that went up on Curbed a couple days ago, uh, where they interviewed, you know, Cheryl Ring? No. Tell okay, me more. so she she is um, a lawyer who does uh, like like. Uh, like a lot of like tenants' rights type things, and you know, like helps poor folks. Um, huh? And just as you were, yeah. But as you were pointing out, like you know, we were talking about like housing being a problem and leading to trafficking. Uh, so there's this article. It's on Curb.com, and uh, she was interviewed for it a couple days ago. And they're actually pointing out um, like some of the things that she has seen in defending poor people. And she's talking about how often it is that uh, landlords have it in their actual like leases that tenants owe them sexual gratification of some sort. And it's like, y'all want to talk about human trafficking. Why is that not, like, you know, uh, front and center of the conversation? Um, Yeah. So it's really wild, like, looking at some of these. Yeah. Um, Let me see if I have. I'm sorry. I just. No, you go ahead and talk. I'm pulling up the article. (laughs) There was a case. There was a case. I had a 
freaking case. There, I'm not going to say where or when it was, but and it didn't move forward on trafficking charges, but it was a couple years ago, and it was basically that was this. It wasn't in the lease, um, but the landlord was extorting sexual favors from someone in exchange for stuff. Oh man, I should go back and look at the facts of that case. But that's really interesting. But you know what? That makes me think of. That makes me think of this hyperfixation on sex trafficking versus labor trafficking and them somehow, mm-hmm. the two of them being somehow different and putting value on those things, which first of all is gross. Uh, but also then just thinking about the prevalence of sexual harassment and sexual assault in, in certain labor industries and why we don't talk about that more. Why don't we talk about more, you know, farm workers? and the prevalence mm-hmm. of sexual assault and, and whatnot on farms. Um, and, and the end to this capitalism um, and a bunch of, well, all the concurrent or companion problems. Um, I totally got off topic there because I'll go down. No, no, you're totally fine. But, but I think, and that's something that I've also realized though, is that so many people are unaware of just how much exploitation exists mm-hmm. that we don't see and how much of it. So, so clearly putting sexual favors in a lease is illegal. Like that's just not legal. I feel confident saying that happened, you know, not actually done landlord tenant law that you can't do that. So that's straight up illegal, but there's other things. And this is something I do with groups when we're talking about labor trafficking is getting them to recognize this. There's other things that are part of labor mm-hmm. law that are, highly exploitive um exploitive or exploitative i don't actually know which one is correct and if they're both words or not but anyways um and people just (laughs) don't know and like the one you know and i actually sometimes use like like strip clubs as an example of this and like stage fees there's actually a lot of people in the world that don't know stage fees exist. And when they see them, they freak out and say, Oh no, Oh no, that person has to pay to like work there. That's awful. That's trafficking. No, it's not. It's normal. That's just part of how the industry is. And you might not like it, but it's normal. Um, so in stuff like that, because it's only like sex work related jobs that freak people out. Because my understanding is that a lot of hairstylists also have to pay for their chairs, but no one really complains about that the same way for some reason <laughs> that did actually come up recently i was doing a training and somebody did say something about the nail their nail tech and like how they rent a chair and like, yeah that's normal and we actually need to know some of these things what's normal and what's mm-hmm. not normal before we can figure out trafficking versus not trafficking because guess what people there's a lot of exploitive things that happen in this country that are perfectly legal and so I think that's actually where the heart of trafficking and, like, getting better. You asked earlier, what can we all do? I think paying more attention to worker rights is the answer. And I think the pandemic certainly illustrated this, about how many people were forced into work situations that were unsafe, about, you know, um, when they dialed back the regulations on meatpacking plants, despite the fact that, like, they're horrible places of injury. Um yeah. And until the public at large is a lot more familiar with how much exploitation we actually let happen, I don't. I think it's gonna be hard to really hit trafficking at a root cause. Yeah, and it's really I think frustrating that people, because, um, <laughs> well, you know, here I go. I saw, I, I when we started this, I was like, I'm not gonna get all super political, but here I am. I'm getting political. I don't care. Um, okay. I, 
it's very frustrating to me that as we talk about, you know, trafficking and there's particularly like labor trafficking and sex trafficking is how much of that is related to like poverty and desperation. But because we live in a, in a society that doesn't want to address those things, how like we keep ending up here, right? Because if we actually yes. took like labor rights seriously in general, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have, uh, you know, so many like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett's in the world and billionaires actually pay taxes so many people wouldn't be in poverty. You know, we wouldn't have this overreaching police state. And it's just like, for some reason, when you point this out, which seems very logical to me, people get very upset about it because they just really cannot imagine a society without a very strict social hierarchy in which you know how you're allowed to treat people beneath you and how you're expected to defer to people above you. You know, and it's it's very, like, very, very frustrating for me. Yeah, I... I agree because at some point, I feel like this is natural in a lot of people who are in anti-trafficking. If you've been around for a decade or more, at some point you stop talking about trafficking and and you shift more to talking about poverty and other things like that. And and trafficking kind of becomes secondary. Um, and I think, I think I would add to what you just said. I think there's two factors going on, though. I would add that people feel helpless to fix it Mm -hmm. and so they turn a blind so right and so if the issue really is like how even housing people feel i they don't know what to do about housing Mm -hmm. if they're not in a house the housing you know field or whatever and so it's easier for them to just turn a blind eye um than it is to figure out what to do and i actually was doing a workshop with a bunch of service writers last week uh, with a with a close friend of mine, and the one thing we were talking about is all of these really huge numbers about trafficking that are always like spewed about, and and they're all wrong for the first in the first place. But really getting them to think critically about, you know, ignoring the fact that they're wrong. Why are we sharing these, and what is the impact of them? And really getting them to think through that one of the impacts of it is when it's put out that there's 20 some million victims. What that does is it makes it so big that it's easy to ignore. And I think that's the thing with poverty and everything too, is people just feel they don't know what to do about it. So I kind of lost the feet, like the, my point of, I agree. People like structure, right? They don't know what to do if they don't, if they're not being sort of told or it's not being projected how they should, should interact with and treat people like, above and below. And I think also, though, compounding that is that it, the problem feels so big that it, they don't mm-hmm. know what to do, and so they just ignore it. it there's a complacency. Um, so, yeah. I really hoped, I really wanted the pandemic to have a bigger impact than it did, and it was probably naive of me to think that it would have a ripple. Although we are seeing with unions and stuff, I would actually say that like the outgrowth of unions is a direct result of a lot of stuff that's happening in the pandemic where some of these exploitative conditions were really exposed and it, and people felt like they had more power to speak up. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, no, right? no, I, After I, a while, like, it just have we gotten to the point where we're just like, it's capitalism, man. Like capitalism just has to go. Like, Cause I feel like no, that's the logical end of all these conversations. <laughs> no, it really is though. And I always try to avoid <laughs> stupid fucking capitalism and white supremacy. 
But no, seriously. <laughs> so, I mean, but like, picture it. Picture going into your ab, like picture going to, I don't know, you know, Burlington, well, probably Burlington, Vermont, probably not a good example of this. You know, picture going to Cincinnati, Ohio and being like, all right, folks, we need to dismantle capitalism. And everybody's going to be like, oh, what does that mean? I don't understand that. That sounds really hard. What do I do? And so they get, so for me also, a lot of it is breaking things down into smaller bite-sized pieces of, mm-hmm. hey, Go to your local meet, like the local meeting where they're talking about housing. Where they're talking about building affordable housing. Go support the affordable housing being built. Um, you know, instead of fix the housing problem. Mm-hmm. And those might sound like exactly. the same answer, but they're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, my God, like, fucking medical care. So many sex workers I know um, do it because they have to take care of someone uh, who has, like, health issues or they themselves have health issues. You want to talk about, like, let's decrease the risk of trafficking. Let's talk about universal health care, please. Like, oh, you know. Listen, uh, housing, health care, worker rights. Uh, Like, I... I have my own experience. Like, I was a very sick child. Where I spent a lot of time in the hospital, and I was very privileged that we had, like, good insurance, but, like, there were times where that didn't happen. And I owe a ton of medical debt right now, right? And, like, I come from yep. a place that's really privileged where, but just even navigating, just at this point, even calling the pharmacy to see if the prescription has been filled has so much, like, PTSD involved in it that, this system creates PTSD for everybody, which makes it even harder to function. I, that's a way off tangent that isn't really relevant to your point. But yeah, like <laughs> universal healthcare would solve more trafficking than than any, even the most perfect artificial intelligence algorithm, whatever, whatever, would solve. Yeah. So the Seriously. key for me is connecting those dots for people in a way that that either is manageable for them or creates curiosity in them such that they're going to move forward trying to learn more. Right. Right. That's, I'm, I am so grateful for your patience, honestly, because I think that um, mm. it can be hard, a little bit daunting, right? Like if you've been in this field for a while, how many times do I have to tell you that it's poverty? <laughs> this shit but you know no I really do like right I feel like I say that at least like twice a day no it's poverty if people had housing and food and medical care you know but um but no I really do appreciate your patience in being able to break this down into digestible pieces so that people you know can sort of put it together and figure it out like that really is um just you know really an amazing talent to have and it is a talent it is a skill and I just you know I really appreciate you for doing that work well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I mean, I'll be blunt. It's not easy. Like, there are days when I want to burn everything down. But I, I have, again, I talk about planting seeds. And I think after 15 years, I've seen enough of those seeds germinate over time to mm-hmm. keep me going. And what I love these days is I get a lot of calls from across the country from jurisdictions that are wrestling with stuff like end demand and all that. Um, and, and I don't ever tell them which way to go. 
we just have, I just ask them questions. I, right. And, and then they call back with, because they've read a new mm-hmm. article and they want to talk about it. And then they, then they refer a friend to call and talk about it. And a lot of it really is what they're trying to do is they're trying to struggle with the complexity of it. The complexity mm-hmm. of that is poverty and how poverty happens and everything that reinforces it, right? So it's not just a yes or no, we think this, we don't think that. Like people need time to wrap their heads around everything that's going on and how all the factors play into itself. And it's kind of awesome to be able to walk alongside them during that journey. And honestly, I feel like this is probably something that I owe a lot to sex workers for too, be like and a lot to Kate probably because I'm pretty sure I had some really dumb questions over the years or like said and did things where someone looked at me and thought, oh, really, really? Do I have to answer that question for you that I've answered 30,000 times? So for me, I feel like people were probably very patient with me. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's also a way of, you know, I'll take one for the team. I feel like I owe it to the world. Like I was young and dumb once and did dumb things. And so now I can be the person that answers that question who other people don't have to. Right. Which is such a great way to look at it. Honestly, like I really do appreciate that positivity, like that optimism. Hope is, hope is what is keeping us going. Right. (laughs) It is as long as, I mean, and I can have it because I see the progress and sometimes it's really tiny, but that's okay. Um, and sometimes it's super hidden from other people. I work a lot at the government. Sometimes changes happen that nobody knows about, but are really exciting. Yeah. You know, you have to be content with that and know that you're, you're staying true to your own vision and integrity and that you are able to move the ball forward, even if it's at a glacial pace. Yeah, no, that's, that's really awesome. Um, we have been on for about an hour. So we are going to wrap up soon, but is there anything else you wanted to add before we do? I think, I know we started talking about Martha's Vineyard, um, and, you know, anybody out there that's, that's listening that wants to talk more about trafficking um, in any way is free to reach out to me. But I will say that I think that there is a lot of synergy between anti-trafficking and, and sex worker rights. And that's not to set the two up as in opposition to each other, but I think, I think you understand what I mean. And I, mm-hmm. I feel encouraged by the fact that I've seen sort of the, the collaboration and the overlap grow a lot more in probably the past four or five years. And so okay. I would just encourage anybody that's out there listening or, or anybody that's coming from either, either background just to really be open because there's a lot to learn. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of a weird stump speech, but <laughs> I, think, I don't really know what I'm trying to say here other than it's okay to be curious. No, I think, no, I think there's definitely validity to that. I know I come down hard on the anti-trafficking movements a lot, um, because a lot of them are like, you know, funded by like weirdo, creepy Christians who keep thinking about your genitals, but there are also people who really do have good intentions, but they've been essentially propagandized they really do think anyone who does sex work is trafficked they really do think that you know like these um even though these policies are ineffective that it's the best way to help people because they do genuinely want to help people you know there's obviously people in it for their own like selfish gain and their own profits but a lot of people really do want to help and they just um have been taught incredibly damaging messages damaging messages about what help looks like and so they're um, yeah 
like their perception of what's helping is actually harming and hurting and they don't know that because they've never been taught that and like there definitely is like a large um like swath of the population that's in that category you know I do, and I guess, so I guess that's a key thing. What I, what I say to folks in trafficking these days is that we're now entering the third generation of anti-trafficking efforts. The first was getting the law passed in the early 2000s. The second was getting some infrastructure and training and services across the country. That was, you know, 2010-ish to, uh, you know, whatever. But I feel like as we hit the 20-year anniversary in 2000 or in 2020, we're entering the critical reflection where there is a lot more critical analysis, where we are reflecting on everything that's been happening and we're asking ourselves hard questions like, is this working? Is this the best we can do? Is this creating collateral harm? And one of the most mm-hmm. important things for me in the trafficking world is to create a tone and a culture of curiosity and a tone where it's okay to say, hey, maybe this isn't the right thing rather than doubling down on the wrong thing. So that's what it really looks like you know, for me moving forward in anti-trafficking. And I think that there's a lot of space then to to collaborate with sex worker rights and, and, and to be allies in that respect because, I mean, you can learn a lot. I'm mm-hmm. walking proof. So, well, I like you know. Learn a lot. <laughs> well, and I mm-hmm. do think that... Um, Giving them it, I think I try to at least give people the opportunity to be curious because you're right. Some people were just taught. This is what they learned. Mm-hmm. And they're open to relearning because they're feeling the tension in the system. And so those are the people that I always try to capture. That went real off the rails. Um, you said something that I was going to respond to, but I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I'm not <laughs> This might know. mean that I just need more coffee. I don't know either, but I like right at that time of day for more caffeine. But I really enjoyed just like having the conversation. Here's my only request, though. Like, I don't think I said anything that would get me fired, right? I didn't come down too hard on law enforcement. Um, I don't think so. No, you'll be all right. No, and everybody knows that this is what I think about law enforcement. And just, I mean, so works. Like, I literally do work pretty much only with law enforcement. But it's nice because I'm like five foot tall and weigh 100 pounds, and and I'm very unassuming, so they never know what's coming mm-hmm. until it's too late. So, you know, I can get a lot done when they don't suspect that I'm trying to do things. So, there's that. Um,. No, I get I just it. don't want to get fired because then it means that all of our work goes backwards and We will not yeah. let you get fired. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing way too much to get no, uh, we will not allow it. You're doing too much <laughs> to get fired. Wait, no, no, also, no, 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 no. Just between us, and this isn't re- related to you. This is related to another person that I actually have blocked on Twitter at this point because there's been two or three times where I absolutely had the not all trafficking, like mental response, and then immediately my uh-huh. don't be that person kicked in in my brain where, like, I dialed back off of that. But I think most of the criticism leveled at the trafficking field is legit. Yeah, we we do. And I'm – yeah. So – and – and I think too many people out there have the not all trafficking reaction, which by now we should be better than that and not have that and instead look at it as opportunities to be like, well, listen, like, like, let's hear out what they have to say because 
Um, and you know what? Someone called me out. I did a workshop on stats that are bad. And um, I think it's probably somebody, man, Claudine O'Leary. Do you know her? <laughs> I don't think so. So she was one of the original founders of Young Women's Empowerment Project. Okay. I think she left in like 2006. Anyways, so she called me out in the eval, and she did it very politely, though. She said, I have one suggestion for you. I think it would be really nice if you were to acknowledge all of the sex workers that have been discrediting these statistics for years. And she was a thousand and ten percent right. And I actually had a slide that like that did that and I didn't share it because we okay. ran out of time. But it was it was uh, a great well, moment where I thought, This is the conversation we should be able to have. Like she should be able to say to me, like, Yeah, you should acknowledge sex workers and I should say, You're absolutely right because those are some of the people I learned from on these stats. Mm-hmm. Um and I and so I say that just in the vein of the criticisms are legit and we should listen to them. No, I was like love that for like a small point. <laughs> no, I love the willingness to um like that. Take, you know, I love the willingness to grow, honestly. Like, it, it, it's refreshing to see that people yeah. have that still. Really, truly. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So we are going to run, though. Is uh, Did you want to share any yeah. links, websites, anywhere people can find you? I will send you a link to my website and Twitter, but um, okay. that's all, you know. Okay. Is there anything yeah. else you wanted to Thanks. say before we cut the recording? No. I know because the adrenaline like left my body. So, um, <laughs> totally legit though. I always feel that like, with a, like, okay, as soon as I hit the stop button, we're not recording anymore. Just, ah, <sighs> right. So you visibly deflate. But listen, thanks. I appreciate um, having this conversation. I appreciate you and just being able to follow you and certainly learn from you over time. So thank you for all that you're doing. Um, and, you know, if you mm-hmm. things, you need to talk about trafficking, I'm around. That's jazz. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, and thank you for your thoughts on this. Um, as you know, it's important to get, uh, I think, a wide range of perspectives on these topics, and especially someone who has um, the legal background and training already. Because, uh, you know, as you said, we started off with the Martha's Vineyard conversation, and a lot of people just don't understand it from, um, like, strictly speaking, like a legal perspective. So thank you very much for being able to uh, explain that to folks, and hopefully it's a little clearer now on why that situation is not trafficking. So, yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, and thanks for all that you do. This was fun. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank we'll you. Have to bye. Do this again. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Beautiful.